Hey everyone, Beyond the Baseline is brought to you by the SeatGeek app, the smartest way to buy and sell tickets for your favorite events. Download the SeatGeek app, enter our code BEYOND, get 20 bucks off your first purchase. We're also sponsored by FanDuel, the leader in one-week fantasy sports. More winners, more payouts than any other site. Enter the promo code BEYOND at FanDuel.com. Enter a risk-free tournament for up to 10 bucks. What I think is most important is to figure out how to win playing average tennis most of the year. There's a lot of different dynamics than just the delivery of the messages. Um, a, a lot of it is about trying to tap in to kind of different ways to get the messages across. It's about building experience. And, and you, what you do is you put yourself in those positions long enough until you're successful. everyone, John Wertheim here. This week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast, we have a guest in state, if not in studio. Paul Anacone has returned to the Empire State for the holidays, and he's joining us today. How are you? Hey, John. Yeah, it's great to be back home in the old stomping grounds. Always great to be back in New York, and not really the Christmas spirit with 60-degree weather, but I'll take it right now. I was going to say, we cooked up a 60-degree day for all the... Uh, <laughs> fellow Californians who have, have come here for the holidays, global warming. So we know Paul from from Tennis Channel, from his fine work with Sampras, Henman, Federer et al. Plays a nice game of golf, all around good guy. Um, so first, how are you? Where are you specifically? Uh, I'm actually out in East Hampton right now, born and raised out here, and just uh, having a little rest and recovery, checking in uh, with my parents and my kids and. Uh, my wife and I spent a few days out here, a couple little business endeavors, but mostly just relaxing for the moment. Very nice. D- digression here. So you you were yeah. a full-time, full-time Hamptons resident? I grew up here when I was 14, John. There were no indoor courts, so my parents made the big leap and sent me down to the Boletary Tennis Academy back in the dark ages, before Crickstein, before Andre. Jimmy Arias was there, and nice. a whole group of others. Rodney Harmon was down there, but uh, back in the day, spent three and a half uh, great years down there developing uh, my tennis skills and a lot of independence, too. And then, off to the University of Tennessee, correct? Yep, off, yep, off to the University of Tennessee. Spent three years there with... Uh, my coach, Mike DePalmer Sr., which really groomed me for the pro tours, and, and uh, he, he spent a lot of time really trying to build up the confidence that a little small-town East Hampton kid actually could be a professional tennis player. But, um, yeah, it was great. My Tennessee volunteer days were tremendous. I loved college. I loved being in Knoxville. Lived there for about four or five years after that. My brother lived there for many, many years, coached me on the tour. So a lot of good memories in Knoxville, Tennessee, and a really nice progression onto the pro tour. Very nice. We're going we're gonna to miss uh, not having an ATP result in the great t- state of Tennessee, not having an event there. Yeah, um, I know. You, you yep, played that many gonna... times, that Memphis event. Oh, yeah. I, I played Memphis even back when, when I was in college. I used to go down there and play the qualifying and uh, have a lot of great mem- memories of the Memphis Racquet Club. Really, um, one of the great things about that event was uh, the, the spectators were right on the court. I mean, it was a true American indoor tennis club. You were up close and personal to the action. Um, it was really nice. So it's kind of sad that it's not going to be there anymore. The, um, 
No, gr- gr- great event. You're right, at a little lo- local racket club. I just remember the NBA players would always come by when they played the Grizzlies. Yeah, they would get yeah. tremendous stars. Anyway, let's. Um, I figured we'd start here. Topic du jour around uh, Sports Illustrated, at least these days. Then we maybe can talk some coaching. But Serena Williams, the day we are recording this podcast, she will officially be named 2015 Sports Person. Note the gender neutrality, Sports Person of the Year. Um, you and I were on an email uh, trail yesterday that was pretty funny. Um, how, how do you feel about that selection? I think it's look for it's always so great for me with the you know my roots are tennis so whenever Sports Illustrated you know dons the cover with a tennis person I'm I'm I'm, I'm ecstatic so that's great that's the first thing the second thing is when you look at who's on it being Serena Williams with you know what she did this year in terms of elevating the visibility of the game of tennis by her pursuit of trying to win the Grand Slam, um, particularly at her age, 34 years old. And the way that she did that this year, I think really, you know, it's tough to kind of weigh the impact quantitatively, but she she lifted the bar. And, and I think that that visibility for tennis and what she showed in the pursuit of that really led her to a monumental year. Um, she had a you know tremendous year winning the first three slams. And I, I think the pressure got to her a bit there at the U.S. Open, even though she said it didn't. Um, you know, and it's only human nature. And she, you know, she lost a tough match in the semifinals, but she was literally, you know, two sets away from uh, winning the fourth uh, major and having the calendar year Grand Slam. So for me, she had a tremendous year, and she's done it throughout her whole career. I just, you know, as we saw in that email chain, you know, we talked about it, I, and and there, I guess there really is no definition. Is it is it result oriented is it you know do you raise your you know the the q level outside of uh, your sport is it what what is it you know how do you decide who the sports person of the year is but she definitely ticked uh, so many boxes and you know the the one thing that we were commenting on was just about Novak Djokovic and his right, you know right. the, if you know if you're talking about tennis players um the year that he had was ridiculous and and uh and, and granted, he lost in the French Open final, so he wasn't able to have that moment in time, which is what Serena had. She had that moment in time where she had those three under her belt. So there was immeasurably more pressure on her at the U.S. Open. So although Novak won three out of four, he didn't have them in succession. So it was a little bit more free swinging for him. Um, but then what he did at the end of the year, two going on to win the U.S. Open and then basically losing one match the entire fall to Roger Federer and, and capturing the year-end championship um, in London, his year was just off the charts as well. So I, I guess you know our debate was really about what, what's the criteria, and that's one of the great conversation points about it. You know, I guess there's a lot of different things that make it a subjective evaluation, but what Serena did really you can't argue with, um, and what she's done for the game of tennis, and in particular for women's tennis for the last over a decade, has been uh, tremendous. Very well said. You're you're taking all the talking points uh, from, from from the meetings here, but uh, no, I, I think I think you're right. I think um, so somebody suggested I will categorically shoot this down. That you know, it's you have to be an American to win this thing. Um, yeah, that, that was not yeah. not not a factor. Uh, but I but I think you're right. I mean, I think this thing. You know what it, it reminds me of is 
I don't know if you get into these these greatest of all time discussions and who's better, you know, Laver, Roger, Sampras, and on the women's side, you have the same conversation, and it's kind of intentionally vague. And how much is Rogers head to head against Rafa count against him? And how much does not winning a career slam hurt Novak? And I think one of the things that makes the discussion lively is that there is no conversion table that you bring your right. own values and you bring your own interpretations. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, I, I think, uh, I mean, I think you're right. And if it were up to me, Jok- Djokovic was sort of candidate one a, um, right. Yeah. Nice, no, but nice I think your, 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 your summation there is great. And that's what makes tennis so tremendous. I think that's what makes all sports tremendous too. But I think tennis in particular, where you have, um, different evolution in terms of rackets and balls and technology and things that are a little bit more impactful than maybe something like basketball. I mean, basketball, you have the athletic skills and you have a basketball, but most of this stuff stays closer to being the same other than the evolution of sports science, which is hugely significant. But in tennis, when you go to new rackets, new strings, heavier balls, slower courts, faster courts, lighter balls, all the different variations, and also just time itself, I, I always shy away from those who was better conversations because I, I just I really don't believe they're the same game. I, I don't believe Rod Laver played the, I don't right. believe Rod Laver played the same game that Rafa's playing right now. I, I don't even believe Novak played the same game that Sampras played, which is only one generation separated. So I, I just think it's always difficult. It makes for great, great provocative conversation but in many ways, it's just opinion. And, and I just think one of the things that saddens me is that the, the one thing that you would love to do is the great players always evolve and change and adapt in ways that most can't. So just, you know, if we want to speculate, just imagine what it would have been like to watch Laver play Borg, to watch Borg deal with somebody like Nadal right, to watch, you know, right. to me, those things would be amazing. And I know that those great players would be great in different eras. And um, I, I think, you know, selfishly for me, I would be, all I would be doing was pontificating and spewing out my own opinion. But I just That's think it's right. different, different games in different eras. You're in, you're in TV now, pontificating, yeah, I can spewing, do that. I spewing do that, out your right? own opinion. That's, a, that's an <laughs> occupational qualification. That's a, that's a prereq. Um, exactly. No, I mean, the other thing I like about tennis that um, I try to impress upon people is, you know, how often do Steph Curry had an off-shooting game, but Klay Thompson picked up the slack and the Warriors remain undefeated. You know, Serena Williams has an off-shooting game, and she's sitting in a press conference with a ball cap pulled low over her face, uh, trying to explain what went wrong. I mean, it's it's one bad day at the office, and, uh, you know, and, yeah, there's, and you're yeah, on the wrong side no, of the result. Yeah, there's, there's nowhere to hide. You know, it's about you on the tennis court. There's no teammates. You know, the women get the on-court coaching, which I guess can be a little bit, you know, that can be a help. But Wait, stop, really, it's, stop it's, there. It's, you, you hate that as much as I do? What's that? That's one of my great pet peeves, so much so that I will interrupt your answer to weigh in and say I hate on-court coaching. Do you share that with you, me? Yeah, I, I'm not sure how I feel about it. With Obviously, with my coaching roots and my egomaniacal ways, I'd love to be out there helping. <laughs> but I also know it, it also loses, it loses kind of the luster of what our sport is about. I mean, figure it out. My, my biggest coaching mantra is really how can I help the player become more independent 
so that they can problem solve in times of adversity. And that's really what the greatest of the greats do. They problem solve in the times of adversity. And in an individual sport, there's no place to hide. And that's one of the things this year, John, circling back to Serena, that's one of the things this year that impressed me the most about Serena Williams. This is the first time that I've seen her go through an entire Grand Slam, which was Roland Garros, and for for her play average or below average and still find a way to win. And and to me... To me, that's the mark of the greatest of the greats. They find ways to win when they're sick, when they're not playing well, when they're hurt, when they broke up with their girlfriend, when the dog ate the homework. Whatever happened, they find a way. And Serena showed us that in Roland Garros this year. And for me, that was a great spectacle to watch. But again, circling back, she she couldn't you know she couldn't tag uh, you know Steph Curry to come in and hit some three pointers yeah, exactly. or get her back. And you know she right, has right. to figure it out, which is great for tennis. Paul, hold that thought. The NBA is still in its early season, but the competition is already heated. How about this for a pair of games on Thursday? Kevin Durant and the Thunder face LeBron in Cleveland. One day later, Steph Curry looks for revenge against those nasty Milwaukee Bucks, the Roberta Vinci's of the NBA season. They entered the Warriors' 28-game win streak on Saturday. Now they play again, and SeatGeek is the best way to find your great deal in these games and many more. When you use my code BEYOND, you get 20 bucks back via check or PayPal. It's very easy. Here's how it works. Download the SeatGeek app today. Enter the promo code BEYOND. SeatGeek will send you $20 once you've made your first purchase. Another great game for the weekend. Carolina, 15-0. Now the only undefeated team in major sports. They're playing at the Meadowlands against the Giants. It's going to be a great, fantastic atmosphere for tickets. Use SeatGeek app. Don't forget to enter our code BEYOND. $20 back. SeatGeek, of course, pulls all the buying and selling options from other ticket sites online. Puts them all in one place. It saves you time. Again, SeatGeek is the place to do it. Download the app today. Let's talk about coaching, because I, I feel like it's got to be one of the stranger jobs in in all of sports. And, you know, you, you sit there and you, you work with a player and you train them and you try to make them mentally strong. You do whatever, the and then the match starts, and then you sit there in the stands and you have to be still because you don't want to get an infraction for coaching. Um, right. I, I feel like, uh, you know, you, you look at the pl- people who are coaches, and some of them are Hall of Famers, and some of them have never even played on the professional tour and you have parents and it, it's a very, I always think a coach's meeting must be the strangest gathering this side of the star Wars bar. Um, <laughs> what, what's, I mean, what, what's you've, you've coached, you know, a number of players now, half dozen players. What, what's the gig like? It's, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting question. And for me, what I've found is that, you know, I think it's different from player to player. Um, different players have different needs, uh, different stages of development have different emphasis on what the player needs. You know, er- early on in players' careers and in their teenage years, it's more dictatorial. It's more, I say this, you do that, you know, here's why, and you kind of throw the path out there and put them on it. And, and then once they become more established and they start to build on experience, it's a cooperative effort. effort. It's a collaborative effort. It's about the, co- the player telling the coach what they think and why they think it, how they're feeling, what's working, what's not. And ultimately for me as a coach, you know, I, I always feel that, um, you know, the best coaches are the ones that can say what they need to say, but the way the player needs to hear it. 
because the most important part of the relationship is getting the player to buy in. And the way to do that is to build up a relationship and a trust that the player knows what you're trying to say, knows how you're trying to say it, and believes it. So you have to figure out how to get the buy-in with the player. And uh, as I said, as the career goes on, as the player gets more and more experienced, in many ways, it's more challenging to do that. You know, in many ways, for me, it was harder to impact a you know, 29-year-old Roger Federer or a 31-year-old Roger Federer than a 23-year-old Pete Sampras. Right, um, right. You know, Pete, Pete had already won, I think, four Grand Slam titles when I started with him, but he was also a little bit more malleable. Roger had won 16. And, and so you better know what you're talking about when you're trying to convince those guys of something or those ladies that are that accomplished because – they're great for a reason, and I think the great ones challenge you in a way to be able to be really clear about what your message is, um, but I, that's what I love. I, I love the collaborative effort. I, I love trying to figure out different ways to push the right buttons to get them to execute in the process that you think will give them success. To me, that, that's, a, that's a feeling that's uh, second to none. But how much of this is you have your organizing principles and you adapt that to the player, and how much of it is you really have to tailor your method? I mean, I always thought when you went from Roger Federer to Sloan Stevens, that, mm-hmm. that had to be a pretty radical change or not? I mean, is, is it— Yeah, well, it was. I mean, Roger—look, Roger, like I said, Roger, when we stopped, Roger was 33, uh, 32, 33, and had won so much. And when I started with Sloan, she was 21, and right. and, and she's still developing. And, and she's, um, you know, an awesome talent, uh, an awesome physical talent with just unbelievable skill sets— and I struggled um, to have the impact, and we talked about it when we stopped. And it wasn't her fault. It wasn't my fault. It was our fault. We, we couldn't get consistent traction. Um, I, I had some great times. I still love seeing Sloan. I love seeing her mom. We all, we've got a good relationship. She's a great young lady. Um, I just wasn't able to get that consistent message across enough to help her do what I think is most important. And what I think is most important is to figure out how to win playing average tennis most of the year. And, and I wasn't able to, to really hit those buttons to do that. So it was a big transition to go from Roger to Sloan. Um, you know, I, I've, got a 20, I've got a 22-year-old daughter and a 22-year-old young lady, my daughter, thinks much differently than my 28-year-old son. So there's a lot right. of different dynamics than just the delivery of the messages. Um, a, a lot of it is about trying to tap in to kind of different ways to get the messages across. And, and a lot of it also, too, John, I feel a lot of it is, um, you, you know, it's about building experience. And, and you, what you do is you put yourself in those positions long enough until you're successful. You know, look back in the day to Von Lendl. It took him a while until he really evolved into his greatness. It took him a while to believe he could win those big matches. And, and that's why when you have an awesome talent like a Sloan Stevens or a Madison Keys or a Grigor Dimitrov or Jack Sock or people like that, you know, everyone's chomping at the bit to see them hold those major titles. 
but it takes time. They've got to get comfortable in those scenarios. And again, that's just another area that, that a coach can really participate in to help them, help them get comfortable in those areas. So, so for me, I think the whole coaching thing is great because I look, I, I giggle like a little kid. I mean, I learned just as much from the players as they learned from me and every player, you get a new environment and you get new opportunities. So I, I take away a lot every time I get to, to talk to anyone different about their game. You have, uh, Join me in this cushy life of, uh, of TV. We get all the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and granola <laughs> bars we want. But when you see these jobs, oh, I mean, you know, Roger Federer parted ways with, with Edberg and very quickly made a transition to Ivan Lubacic. But there are a number of openings for coaching positions. You and I hear just kind of through the tennis transom that some relationships may be, um, you know, tenuous, male, female. I mean, are you still, do you still consider yourself a tennis coach? I do. I, I think I'll always be a coach. You know, I spent uh, I spent the better part, almost 20 years coaching. You know, started with Pete in 1995. So between coaching Pete and, and Tim Henman and Jim Grab a little bit and helped Justin a little bit early in his career and Doug Flack and Roger and Tim Henman and Sloan and even a couple weeks with Jennifer Capriati. I mean, I, I have had a lot of coaching opportunities, and I've got to do some player development stuff with the Federation. So I feel really blessed and really fortunate, but I do feel like I'm a coach at heart. I really do. Um, unfortunately, I'm also someone that uh, probably doesn't want to travel, you know, 35 or 40 weeks a year anymore. So that has a little bit of a kind of a hindrance in terms of, the type of player that I would be able to help because I think it would, it would be uh, a little bit of a different scenario. And we're seeing some more of that now. You see Stefan didn't travel that much with Roger. Right, right. You see Boris take some weeks off. So, so that does happen. But, yeah, I'm always going to consider myself a tennis coach. And, and every time I look at players, I still look at them, you know, with the coach's hat on and go, hmm, what could they or couldn't they do? Or, what, what, you know, where do you go from here? And, and for me, I get, like you said, I've got that cushy life. I get to sit up with all my buddies at Tennis Channel and watch the best matches and, and get to uh, get a great seat without sweating bullets, wondering if I've given the right information or not before the match. <laughs> How's your fantasy football team doing this year? Are you still in the game? You know what? Those sound like old questions. The great part about playing daily fantasy is that you don't play in one league. You play in a bunch. And on FanDuel.com, use the code BEYOND. You can play in a risk-free tournament in fantasy football, basketball, hockey, no doubt soon to be tennis. And for up to 10 bucks, if you win, keep the money. If you lose, FanDuel will refund it into your account guaranteed. That sounds like a pretty good deal. If you had Russell Wilson this week, you're sitting pretty tight right now. Fantasy owners who also had guys like Odell Beckham, while the rest of us didn't, they feel pretty smart. That could all change next week. Think you know fantasy football? Come and prove it at FanDuel. Building a team is easy. It's fun. Pick your players. Stay under the salary cap. Entry fees start as low as just a buck. There's a league for everyone. They offer the NFL, NBA, NHL, play fantasy sports for real cash any night of the week. FanDuel, not just for large tournaments. You could even set up a private league, play against your buddies. How do you get started? Easy. Go to FanDuel.com, click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner, use the code BEYOND, and sign up now. Again, they've got a no-lose offer. Ten bucks. If you win it, keep the money. If you don't, They'll refund it to your account, guaranteed. FanDuel.com. It pays to be a fan. F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. Try it out today. 
If you want to win your fantasy league daily or season long, the SI Fantasy Football Podcast has the tips, the rankings, and they will keep you ahead of the competition. Hear the SI Fantasy Football Podcast with Michael Beller, released twice a week on iTunes, Stitcher, and SI.com backslash podcasts. Help me decode some coach speak. Every time there's a new coaching relationship, they say to the coach, you know, what are your plans for player X? And the inevitable response is, I'm not going to reshape their game. They're just some small things we're going to work on. Everyone says mm-hmm. that. I mean, that's what, well, that, 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 what does that mean? I would, like, like in I would, practice, I, well, how does that play yeah, out? Well, I would say that the thing about that is that that's really important, especially at the top of the game. Um, I, I think you look at a Roger Federer and you go, okay, what's Lubitsch going to do with Federer now? The guy's 34 years old. He's won 17 slams. He's won a million turns. Well, what's he really going to do? Well, what did Stefan do? You know, what did I do? And, and, and at the top of the game, it's about understanding kind of what I would call quantitative impact. In other words, the narrowest of margins have the biggest impact at the most important time. So you want to figure out in a prioritized way what the most important components of helping a player would be. That's the difference between winning or losing break points, tiebreakers, creating enough opportunities to execute, and you do that within the strategy of the player. Most of the time at this level, you know, with Roger in four years, technique, I talked to technique with Roger probably less than 3% of the time. It's about strategic outcome. Once in a while, we'll talk about keeping the elbow up on his serve, making sure that the right shoulder's around on his backhand. But it's really about what strategies will put you in the right position often enough to make you successful. And, and for me, you can talk about it for a long time, but it really, it's very cliched, but it is very true. It's about what are you going to do at the biggest moments to give them a chance that they do believe that their strategy will get over the finish line. So to me, that, that cliched statement, John, is really more towards the top of the game. Now, if you were to say someone like Grigor Dimitrov, who's younger and hasn't gotten there yet, there's a lot more to it than one or two things. There, there's more about strategic management of his game. What is his default mode when pressure situations present themselves? You know, there's a lot more that goes into someone like Grigor, who's been eight in the world, but he's not, you know, Roger, he's not Rafa, but there's still a lot of things he can develop, or a Borna Chorich, or even a Madison Keys, or Sloan Stevens that I mentioned. Those folks have more areas where you can be broad stroke. But with the top players, it really is um, managing the biggest moments and the areas that have the biggest impact in the most pressure-filled situation. So you can say it's not really that much, but really it's huge because these little things are at like the 99th percentage of most important times in matches. So they're huge difference makers, and it's just that the margins are that narrow. So those cliches that are thrown at you and well at me now too in TV, a lot of them are true, but again, they're individually layered depending on who the player is. So when do these interactions occur? I mean, when does this conversation happen? You, you go to an NBA practice, and even in the NBA, I mean, it's 100 times more intense in college, but even in the NBA, the coach is stopping practice, and he's you know he's summoning the team and they're going over a play you watch a tennis player practice and it's not uncommon for the coach not to say a single word during the practice session I mean when are you getting together with a player and actually having this this dialogue 
Mm-hmm. Well, everybody's different. I mean, Roger, actually, we, you know, earlier on in our in our partnership, we watched a, we actually watched a bunch of tapes together, lots of different video of strategies to see what was working and why. Discussed it night before, during practice weeks, at tournaments. You know, just on the wonders of our beautiful internet that we have now, we would do stuff like that. Us um, and and once a pl- I always felt like with great players. I, I didn't want to be talking too much, particularly in because when they're practicing, there's thousands of people watching generally, you know, at the tournaments and stuff. So right, right. a couple of quick themes here. What we, here's what we want to work on today. You know, let's do some, making sure that, you know, you work on your backhand down the line. I want you to attack second serves. Make sure you hit a lot of bodies, so, you know, things like that. And then on the changeover when they're getting the water, just one or two things here and there. But most of the stuff I think is about – you know, the big training blocks preseason and training blocks midseason, and then just what I call kind of the refresher courses that go on away from the court. I think, I actually think the most important time is that the alone time you have with the player, whether it's at dinner, whether it's playing cards or watching a movie in a hotel room, that's when you're going to have the biggest impact to me. Um, and then you get those themes across, and then you just need one or two little catchphrases to trigger those things during the practice sessions. It's like a safe word. Um, so let, let me ask you, um, let me ask you, Roger, question. I mean, you've sort of made no secret of your your fondness for him, and you you tell great Roger stories on and off the air. When people say inevitably, as they do, what do you do? Well, I'm a tennis coach. Who do you coach? Well, Roger Federer. What what's that like? What's he like? What do you tell people? I mean. Give us a sense of your, uh, you know, give us a sense of your esteem for Federer. Well, I, I'll give you a great analogy. Back in, when I started coaching Pete, it was very similar. It was very similar because, uh, you know, in, in a, it was a very sad situation when Tim Gullickson got diagnosed uh, with brain cancer, and I started helping Pete in hopes of Tim coming back and, and getting a full recovery, which unfortunately didn't happen. But at the beginning, when I started, Timmy was so funny to me. He said. He said, okay, now you're going to be the guy that everyone's going to come up to you and say, well, what do you do? And I said, okay, well, what do you say? And Timmy said, just tell them what I said. I said, I roll the balls out in the court and say, go get them, big guy. That's what Phil, ja- <laughs> Phil Jackson did that with the, uh, with the Bulls, exactly. Yeah, go get them, big guy. Right. So, uh, <laughs> but, but really, I mean, one of the things that I found really interesting about the, the great players, both Tim, uh, both Tim Henman and Pete and also Roger, is their personalities are very different. Roger is much more expansive. He's, uh, and Tim was similar to this too, Henman. They, they're into the longer conversations of understanding not just what they're doing, but why they're doing it. Pete was much more uh, insular and much more encapsulated. You know, with Pete, you really wanted to be succinct, clear, and concise. And then he was on, and then he was off and running. Pete didn't want to sit down and talk philosophy for 25 minutes about a strategy. Roger is pretty expansive, and that, and that's why at 34 he's still interested in listening to Lubitsch and Stefan Edberg and Severin and me and you know Jose when Jose was there. So every personality is a little bit different, but I I think the majority of what you do is based on a chart just like you do with every other business and every other sporting team. There are certain times in the year where you focus more on mechanics and technique. There are certain times in the year where it's more about strategy, um, and you just have to figure out how to manage the ego and the emotional side of it to maximize it so that those players can play their best tennis at the most important moments. And again, 
that's the trick. That is one of the tricks of coaching is everybody's personality is different. So you have to try to figure that out. What did you do when Roger Federer was practicing? Someone asked him for an autograph and he went over and signed it during the practice session, which I've seen him do. Just shake my head, basically. <laughs> you've, you've seen that. You know what I'm talking about, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's just, he's just, you know, they broke the mold. He's just one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. And I've never met a more egoless person in a position that has achieved so much. And, and, you know, every time I see his parents, I just, you know, I just tell them they did a great job. He has an unbelievable amount of humility and grace and also just this selfless perspective about what he does. And, and I think that, you know, that's what, that's the biggest reason why at 34 years old, he can still play at this level because he loves it and he realizes that he's fortunate to do it. And guess what? It is going to stop at some point. But while I love it, I'm still going to embrace it. And, and when you watch him on the practice court now and you see him laughing and not cringing and the body just falling apart and hating to do, you know, foot drills and hit the gym, he loves all that stuff still. And so for me, I think that's all driven by the fact that he has this humility, he's got this grace, and he's got this understanding and perspective that even as good as he is, he's not going to beat Father Time, so he better embrace it right now. How much uh, speed round? I got, I got quick questions. But how, how, much, how much longer? How many more years are we, uh, we going to have Federer in our midst? In, in, until he goes an entire year without being in the final four of a Grand Slam tournament. That next year will be his last year. Oh, good how's answer. For, good answer. How's that for a non-answer? Okay. Uh, all right, speed round. All right. Djokovic wins 0-1-2-3-4 majors next year. Two. Serena? Four. Four? No, I got to renege on that because I got to renege on that because on on Tennis Channel, I put my foot in my mouth because then Lindsay keeps making fun of me. Okay, I'm going Lindsay wins two. I'm sorry. I'm going Serena wins two and Djokovic wins two. All right. So we we went from winning the Grand Slam to uh, to two. I've got to renege because I know if I say four, somehow right. Lindsay Davenport's going to find out and give me grief. So I'm going back to two. Well, four is a big number. Um, I know. Player outside the big four in the men's game, who's going to be the first one to win a major? Wow. Big five, is ever, really. Is it ever going to happen again? You wonder. <laughs> don't You wonder, don't you? Yeah, you do. Um, I'm going to go outside the big four. I am going to go... Grigor Dimitrov. Really? Yeah. You, th- you think he can, that the talent will come to bear for seven straight matches? I do. I do. Once he figures out how to manage his toolkit. That's a, uh, that, that's a bold pick. Not, yeah. um, not coming off a great 2015, but uh, talent, talent is talent. Yeah. Can't teach someone p- to be more talented. <laughs> you like the Olympics? I don't like the Olympics with tennis. I'm not a fan. That was a setup. I knew that. Tell us why yeah. you don't like the Olympics. Because the, the tennis calendar is a mess as it is. Um, there's, you know, our, our biggest events are losing credibility. Davis Cup's format's horrible. They have Davis Cup. ITS had Davis Cup and the Olympics in the same year. Davis Cup has already dwindled in terms of its esteem. Um, and it just hurts it. The Olympics doesn't help tennis. I, don't, I just don't like it there. The... Um... All right, I said I said half an hour. We've exceeded that. Uh, uh-huh. This was great. You know, you know what I think you did. What's that? Problem solve in a time of adversity. 
Oh, good. I'm there we go. I kids. like it. John, you're That's catching great. on to my cliches and catchphrases. That I love it. That is a it. great catchphrase, seriously. That's, that's <laughs> locker room right there. Um, this is great. We'll see you. Uh, when are we going to see you next? Am I going to see you in Australia? I hope so. That's, uh, I hope so, that's too. Great. Listen, man, thank you very much for having me, and you guys have a great, uh, a great holiday season, and enjoy this good cheer, and look forward to an exciting tennis calendar in 2016. Well, I like Should that. Good stuff. Yeah, it'll be the great year stuff. year of Serena Williams' Grand Slam, says Paul Anacone. Uh, that was great. But bundle up in Australia. It's going it's to be cooler than uh, December in New York, but uh, appreciate, appreciate d- the time, as always. It's great. I doubt that. It'll be a good time. I'm looking forward to it, John. Same here. Thanks, Paul. That was great. Thanks, man. You take care. Happy holidays. You too. See you, buddy. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. That was Paul Anacone, longtime tennis coach, has worked with players like Pete Sampras, Roger Federer, Tim Henman, and Sloane Stevens, among others. Interesting mix. December represents many things. It also represents a time when tennis players are in the markets for coaches. Madison Keys has a new coach. Heather Watson will have a new coach. Borna Chorich, Elias Emer, Roger Federer working with Ivan Lubacic, all sorts of coaching changes, so I was glad we had Paul on to tell us a little bit about what this crazy gig is like. A lot of fun, and I also always appreciate all the responses through email, social media. If you have suggestions for guests, Paul was one of them. We would be happy to entertain them, so keep it coming. Have a good week, everyone, and we'll talk to you in seven days. Thank you.